0: Welcome to the Future of Application Security, a podcast for ambitious leaders who want to build a modern and effective AppSec program. Doing application security right is really hard. Now I'm going to help you build a better future of AppSec at your company by curating the lessons from the leaders. I'm your host, Harshal Parikh, CEO of Tromso, and without further ado, let's get into it hey everyone welcome to a special episode of the future of appsec we recorded this episode originally as a linkedin live on april 18th 2023 where i had matt Johansson, principal security architect at reddit and clint gibler head of security research at semgrep now in this conversation we talked about some of the latest trends in application and product security what are some of the top challenges that modern security teams are facing as of 2023 and also some insights on what works and what doesn't work. I truly enjoyed this conversation with both of those phenomenal people, and I'm sure you will as well. So let's jump right in. Clint, do you wanna talk a little bit about uh, yourself for people who might not be familiar with you, although that might not be very common. Everyone knows who you are. I don't know if that's the case, but uh, yeah,
1: thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So currently, I'm the head of security research at Simgrip. So we're building an open source tool to make it easy to find bugs and enforce good coding patterns. I have a lot of thoughts on secure guardrails and secure defaults, which I think we're going to talk about later, uh, which I'm excited about. And um, yeah, I run TLDRSec, which is a weekly security newsletter where I read all too much uh, things about security and try to condense that down into one newsletter that you can read in about 10 minutes about AppSec, web security, cloud, container, machine learning, red team, blue team, uh, pretty much everything, uh, at least a little bit. Before this, I did uh, some security consulting. Before that, I was a indentured servant. I mean, a grad student, and uh, yeah, done a lot of things. But yeah, I'll uh, pass the team, Matt.
2: Yeah, hi. Thanks for having me. AppSec veteran, long time doing offensive stuff on AppSec, but then I've been uh, I've been blue team for uh, the last seven or so years. So on the protection side from. Big banks to small startups and kind of everything in between and yeah nowadays i'm running security architecture at reddit and so yeah a lot of uh fun experience to, to pull from on this and i know clinton harshal and i have had some conversations you know via social media that kind of spurred this conversation so i'm looking forward to it and yeah thanks for mentioning my newsletter as well yeah vulnerable you just getting it started so appreciate the plug it is the conglomeration of some thoughts behind mental health, personal growth, leadership, principles, and then yeah, like infosec news stories that I'm reading this week that I try not to overlap too much with Clint's news. <laughs> I purposefully tried to uh, grab some different stuff and some of the other newsletters out there. So yeah, thanks for mentioning it.
0: You know, it's so very well aligned with what we are talking about, which is the evolution of AppSec or security in general. Back in the day, it was all about technology. It still is a lot about technology, but as the function has evolved, we all know that it's a lot more about how to collaborate with people, how to be vulnerable yourself within an organization, help your peers, uh, leadership, collaboration, communication, all very, very important things to become an impactful security professional, right? So I think it adds significantly, that element adds significantly to a more complete security professional, right? That's kind of the thought behind it. Yep. And uh, kind of pulling from the the
2: play on words of being vulnerable. And then obviously vulnerability being you know a key thing that we all focus on in our day-to-days of identifying vulnerabilities. So not only in code, but in ourselves. And how can we become more resilient, both as a platform and as a person, so.
0: Phenomenal. So Matt, you've been around the block quite a bit. Let's talk about how this has changed, how the world of AppSec has changed over the past several years. It obviously continuously keeps changing, but without talking about GPD, chat GPD, how does that look like now?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, some of the things I've been focusing on in a lot of things I've been talking about with like look backs on the last decade and where we've come, you know, decade plus since AppSec has been kind of like in the forefront of people's minds, right? We've gone from AppSec being like a niche part of a security program, right? Where firewalls and network were king. and, And then, you know, you saw the Sony pack of, you know, 2010, nine, that range. And then all of a sudden everyone started focusing on AppSec, right? Cause SQL injection brought PlayStation network down and hundreds of millions of dollars and okay, this moves the needle, right? So the AppSec hockey stick grew and everyone went from, oh, let's, you know, maybe do some AppSec on our flagship site to, oh, we have to scan everything now. Anything that's on the internet might have access to the database that has things that we care about in it, right? So you went from this like niche and protect, you know, your main.com to very broad, quick things. And that's when you saw kind of the explosion of the DAST world, right? And then since then, we've kind of clamored as an industry to shift left and, and do all this stuff more in line with developers instead of, you know, trying to scan everything once it's already live and how expensive that is and how hard it is to fix things at that breadth And I think we've relatively been successful in a lot of ways in actually shifting the whole industry further to the left because we have been yelling about it long enough. (laughs) So a lot of tools that are coming out these days that are best in breed in AppSec are geared towards developers instead of geared towards a security team, right? And so that's where I see some of the major shifts happening. And in line with that, a lot of the code that the developers are writing are on platforms and frameworks that have security kind of baked in that didn't exist 10, 15 years ago as well, right? The hoops that you had to jump through to protect yourself from the cross-site scriptings and the SQL injections of the world in Java and PHP, you had to like know how to do it. Nowadays, you kind of have to do the opposite, right? Like if you were to write an XSS bug in React, like you're kind of, purposefully going around their protections and then coding yourself into a vulnerable state. That's not how it was 10 years ago, right? So you're kind of seeing the shift, right, where, you know, some of the breadth and scanning everything in the world is becoming less prevalent in modern environments. Everything I'm going to say is in modern environments, because there's still plenty of legacy environments. You know, there's still organizations out there with thousands of Java and PHP apps running on the internet, right, that still need, you know, a lot of that tooling. But in like a modern, you know, if you're you're in a modern tech company or a newer company that's building all of their internet presence on these like secure by default single page apps and things like that, your app sec profile looks way different than the, the Sony's of 2010, right? So that's kind of what I've been trying to talk about a little bit, a lot, you know, I've got some CFPs at, entered to a few conferences about like this whole, hey, we, we did the shift left thing, now what, right? So that's what I'm
0: excited to talk about today. That's pretty cool. And I think it makes sense to think about this differently than now it's not about, well, it's still about finding bugs and running tools, but a lot of it is also about enforcing those secure standards frameworks, things like that, which I'm sure Kling will have a thing or two to say about. What have you seen as adoption of that phenomenon, that different way of building AppSec?
1: Yeah, I think, totally agree with what Matt said. I think there has been a strategic shift between me early two thousands, people like writing lots of code, then like, oh wait, maybe we should actually secure it. And then hey, let's find all the bugs. And then after that, more like, oh, how do we prevent bugs from happening in the first place? Because it turns out it's very difficult to have like five appsec engineers secure the code written by like a thousand developers. Just like numerically you can't find all the bugs. But instead if you can prevent them from happening in the first place by giving them sort of the building blocks and tools, like the frameworks that make security happen by default, then you just like don't have to find the bugs. I think that, I don't know, maybe this is kind of depressing to admit as a security professional, but I think that like the evolution and improvement of say web frameworks that um, as Matt said, uh, say handle CSRF by default, output encode by default, object relational mappers or ORMs that make it difficult to do SQL injection. I think that like those libraries getting better has probably net both prevented more security vulnerabilities and just overall like reduce the risk to applications probably more than like security tools that have been built. Like if I had to say like I can only have one thing, either like all the SaaS and DAS tools we have today or like really, really amazing frameworks, like I would probably choose frameworks if I had to. But also there's of course still legacy things that don't do that. So I think that there has been a shift in terms of how people think about this idea. I feel like it's maybe catching on pretty well like i think now people are like okay agile devops cloud like okay we get it like this is a thing and i feel like there's not too much pushback on those concepts and i feel like sort of secure defaults and secure guardrails are getting there now today the past few years whereas like five or six years ago people i think may have been more thinking about like you know playing buck whack so i have like anecdotally a number of cases from different companies just like chatting with friends there who found that um embracing like either having your appsec team build some say XML parsing wrapper library that basically makes XXE impossible like that helped them one company like eliminate classes of vulnerabilities another company was like our front end had a ton of jquery and just legacy javascript and we moved to react and then now cross site scripting almost never happens so like anecdotally i've heard a number of cases where there's been huge wins but i think that even if you sort of believe in this methodology, it still can be quite difficult in practice. There's a lot of like technical as well as like people challenges in like making this a reality. So yeah, I, I'd be curious. Well, we we can talk about this potentially later, but I'm curious what both of you think about like, okay, let's say you're you're at a company. You're like, this is how I want to do things. Like maybe how do you actually do it? Or what are some challenges people have had in practice? Because I, <laughs> I would say naive me maybe a few years ago was like, oh, If you believe in this, it's easy. You just do it. But I think tactically, it can be hard. So I don't know if you want to share anything about that, or we can chat about it later.
0: I think it's a good time. I'll share some learnings on that, right? So exactly as you said, I thought, naive me, I thought, you know, obviously going towards this newer framework makes total sense. We should just do it. Eliminate this entire class of vulnerability so we don't have to worry about it. But obviously, engineering, investments, resource prioritization works a little bit differently than that simplistic way of thinking, right? So I felt like a lot of the skills needed to make those transitions are different as compared to what we had in my previous organizations in terms of, you know, security teams are built towards finding problems, getting them fixed. As compared to now, you need more convincing the engineering people, more collaboration and prioritization of things like, okay, let's move away from this legacy web framework to this newer framework that has all these secure by default controls built in. But then you have to figure out how do you put that in a roadmap? How do you convince product management and engineering to prioritize those efforts? How do you have them invest four engineers, five engineers, or whatever it is to make that transition? Because engineering teams and product teams are constantly struggling in prioritizing customer-facing revenue-generating features versus this, which could be more of a tech debt type of situation, right? So. How do you convince people? How do you collaborate with them to make these transitions? And how do you pick your battles, really? Because there's just going to be a lot to do. And I felt like that was very different way of functioning as compared to, we found these problems, here's JIRA tickets, let's do something about it. What do you think, Matt? Yeah, completely agree. And that's kind of, I'm glad you you put that cherry on top at the end, because that's
2: kind of what I've also been seeing like finally, like a really good move towards the tooling being less pump out tickets or reports and throw them over a fence, like with some sort of triage from an analyst type that knows about security, to how do we speak to developers in the language that they like know, right? like, okay, vulnerabilities are just kinds of bugs. So like, what's like our bug flow, right? So you have more and more tools injecting themselves into github prs uh, for example right or more and more tools being built straight into the ide or meeting the developers where they are versus i'm going to spit out a bunch of jira tickets or alerts to splunk or you know forbid a a pdf (laughs) to a security analyst type or even in-house like security team who's going to then translate that via the, uh, the dark arts to the developers who then need to like wind up going and tracking it in their systems anyway, right? So yeah, like we're finally seeing that shift and that's like all the tools that I've used over the last five years that the teams have really been happy customers of and happy like users of have been developer focused and not security team focused, right? Yeah. It's just, I mean, all metrics trend better, right? That's why we've been clamoring about shift left for so long, right? It's just the data just is it is so easy to tell, okay, your time to fix, your cost to fix, everything goes down, right? Amount of bugs in production, all that goes down,
0: right? Yeah. So I think one of the key learnings that I have is the fundamental difference in approaches. If you make the alignment across the organization that security is just another type of quality issue or a bug that devs need to fix, that shifts their mindset away from, you know, There's a security team that sits in this separate floor, separate building, separate corner of the office, and they're responsible for doing it. So they instrument everything. They instrument security tooling, and it's their responsibility as compared to adopting dev-focused tools. And then it becomes the developer's responsibility, really. There's a challenge in making that move because a lot of times dev teams typically tend to think of security, compliance, risk, all those issues as one bucket, right? So how do you get it at the same level as the rest of the quality issues so they start taking ownership. That's a big challenge. The naive way of thinking is we get this new tool that works in IDEs and in GitHub PRs and it'll just work. It almost never happens, right? The security teams can deploy all the tooling you want, but just because you have that tooling doesn't mean developers will start adopting it or do something about it. So there's got to be that shift in, in thinking of who owns this, whose responsibility is it for them to start adopting it. Yeah. And you still need the expertise in house, right? Like the developer is still going to come and say,
2: Hey, which one of these is serious, right? Or which one of these is the most serious, right? Like, you know, CVSS is fairly useless, like N means nothing to developers. So like, you know, if everything that we've spit at them falls between a nine and a 10 on CVSS, okay, nothing is a priority, right? If everything's a priority. So yeah, like having the security expertise to say like, Hey, yeah, this is actually a bad thing and like let's enforce an SLA on it and all that kind of stuff and like own the actual like triage and life cycle of vulnerabilities like app, or removing ourselves from vulnerabilities, right? Just talking like what Clint was saying about implementing frameworks and implementing secure by defaults. Like those projects are still gonna be owned somewhat at least by the security teams, right? For like truly understanding like the value add and the importance and prioritization and all that kind of stuff, right? That it's just not in the developers remit to do. Right? They're just trying to get code out the door. They're trying to get features to users faster, right? So, okay, how do we say we have to balance that with our move to this XML wrapper thing that's gonna go live, right? And who's gonna write that code? Is that gonna be a security engineer? Or is that gonna just be a developer that a security person is you know, helping prioritize their work and that's gonna be up to the org, right? We're seeing more and more security teams these days. I think you know, going back five, 10 years at least, but it's getting more and more popular that like security teams are hiring developers more than they're hiring security people right is like okay yeah security engineer was the job title for a while but like big s security little e engineer and like now we're seeing you know the trend towards no i need I, i need people that can write code on the security team so that they can pull their weight and not just throw things over the walls to the
0: developers Do you think uh, there is a comfort level within the security teams to actually partner closely with the dev teams? And the reason I ask that question is I talked to a lot of security teams who are still very, very, I don't want to say scared, but very, very cautious of touching anything related to the dev workflow. Now, that's a good thing. You don't want to disrupt dev workflow as a security team, but also that hurts the ability of security teams to actually make impact and build positive security practices within the developer workflow. Do you guys see that pattern at all? Yeah, for sure. I'm seeing a lot of teams get value out of like embedded security
2: champions even, right? Like, so is this person on the security team and gets embedded into a developer team for some period of time, or maybe even indefinitely, they're focused on that team is super valuable or recruiting security champions that are already just naturally part of that team, right? Especially in teams that are like SRE driven is like a really, really good relationship to have with your security team of, oh, do we have a security champion on SRE to help us get whatever we need going live and in production and, and things like that, right? Like SRE is generally the people who hold the the cheat codes to <laughs> getting stuff live and getting code running, right? So. Yeah, the embeds and the champion model. Um, I'm seeing a lot of people uh, very happy when they talk about this stuff.
1: Agreed. And um, just one thing we were talking about in terms of getting adoption of either security frameworks or security tooling. I think that's yeah, like definitely plus one. What Matt was saying about like how do you move into existing developer workflows and systems? And if you think about it, this is like not even necessarily specific to security. This is just like good. UX or uh, UI stuff in general, like if a group of people already have a normal way they do a thing, like how can you put whatever you want them to do like within that thing? So if you're normally um, using say GitHub Actions or CICD and like reviewing code in GitHub, like how do we provide sort of the security or other feedback uh, within those existing systems or IDEs or things? It's not like, hey, log into this like separate system with separate credentials. You don't use this system for anything else, but like, please go do work. Like, I'm adding work for you and making you go check a place where you didn't have to check before, which regardless of whether that's development or something else, that's like not good user experience. And I think, I guess like building on that, I think there was a nice blog post recently by Mark uh, Kerfee, where he basically said like, being sort of like developer native in terms of providing feedback or workflows within existing developer workflows, that's kind of like table stakes now for security tools. And now ideally we're providing sort of general value that is in addition to sort of security things. So I've mentioned this in a couple of talks I've given over the past few years, but basically like how can we not just provide security value, but also some sort of uh, foundational primitive that is just useful for engineering teams. So one success story I've heard is going back to sort of the XML parsing wrapper library. So a friend of mine at a company, they're like, okay, cool. We built this XML parsing library that's like basically like drop in replacement for how you used to be doing it, developers. But also, by the way, we are it has a bunch of like telemetry built in. It has a bunch of logging so you can see like, oh, like what was being parsed? How long did it take? What other systems were you reaching out to? Just like all of these things that like you would sort of one as a developer, just to understand, like, how's my system working, how performant is it, and things like that. So basically, by using this library that happens to have security properties, but you get like a whole bunch of things that you don't have to build for yourself. And I think there's a bunch of other examples, like, so thinking about how security is just a subset of code quality. So for example, say like a code scanning tool, you could say, yes, we're looking for security issues, but also code scanning or code analysis is like a fundamental Capability or primitive that you could also use as, say, a platform engineering team to enforce just coding guidelines, or maybe there's like a new developer who's uh, joining, has never worked at your company before, and you're like, they push their first code to GitHub, and then you could say, hey, like you're using, you know, this function call or this library, but we actually use this internally, and it could be related to performance or logging or something like totally unrelated to security, but the capability to analyze code and write like a PR comment could be very useful for like code quality or performance or logging or just consistency. Like there's so many things that it's useful for where security is just one of those. So I think as security teams, if we can think about, you know, I want development teams to do this. What are the like additional nice things that I can vote for them that like they're just going to get for free if they do that? Then like, why wouldn't they do it? right? Because you're giving them a ton of things that they want. And oh, by the way, it happens to be secure also. So I think the more that we can think about shared wins and fundamental capabilities versus just security capabilities, I think that's just better for the organization. And also, I think just makes us like a team that other orgs want to partner with, where we're not just like, hey, we're like derailing your product plans and shipping plans and like slowing down your engineering velocity. It's like, oh, we can make you ship Better, higher quality code faster, or like, oh, we have less downtime than we used to, or we can actually ship to prod faster because of like, I don't know, we like automated some stuff that used to be manual, but also by doing that, there's less room for human error. So there's like so many ways I think that we can like provide value and just capabilities to engineering teams that makes their life better and hopefully is more secure. So yeah. anyway, it was like a lot of things, but I, I think that's a useful way to think about it that I see a number of companies doing.
0: Yeah. I'm going to challenge that a little bit. My belief is that most humans are very lazy, especially great engineers are very, very lazy, right? So how do you convince them or how do you motivate them? How do you incentivize them to adopt a secure framework is a challenge. Just showing them additional value they would get by adopting certain things doesn't necessarily work all the time just because their primary priorities, their performance as an engineer, as a member of the organization is dependent on many factors, including shipping features quickly, you know, building quality code, which security may not be a part of that criteria. So when you're faced with smart and lazy engineers, how do you incentivize them to adopt these things? or how do you enforce them? Where is that line that you would draw between incentivizing and enforcement? I'd love to hear both of your thoughts on that decision-making. Yeah, I think that's a great pushback. Yeah, I'll offer like a few quick thoughts and then uh, Matt will let you maybe
1: provide more detailed thoughts. Um, So I think I might butcher this slightly, but if we look at, say, Netflix for one example, so they have like this idea of a paved road where they have, say, like one or two languages and frameworks that if you use those, it's very easy to get a new microservice up and it will automatically do like MTLS to other services. It can like the pipeline is like super clean like how you push to production and you get like nice detailed logs and there's like basically 50 things you get uh for free if you do like the normal stack that's expected or like we built out this thing if you use that boom like 50 of the things you need to do like it's just done for you and you don't have to do that like you could use i don't know like OCaml or Lisp or Rust or like something that's like not as well supportive, like you can, right? So their value of like freedom and responsibility, like you can do that, but you're just going to, they have, I guess, policies and other expectations around if you are shipping like a production facing uh, say microservice, like it needs to fulfill these properties. And so it's just easier and faster for you to do sort of the thing that they built for you rather than to do something else. So yeah, they are, so you are saying in your case, like developers being very smart and lazy. So it would help them be lazier to do the thing that's been built for them rather than to like do something else. But I don't know, Matt, uh, what do you think?
2: Yeah, it's always the balance between carrot and stick, right? Is okay, what, you know, what can we do? And I've seen success with both. I don't think there's a clear winner, right? I think your point on laziness is taken and is why... I think it goes to the core of what we started talking about at the top of this conversation, both Clint and I, about the frameworks and secure by defaults, right? I mean, we knew what cross-site scripting, SQL injection, c like we've known about these things since the early 2000s, right? And we've known how to fix them or avoid them for as long as we've known about them. And yet they were still prevalent, right? They still are prevalent, right? They're just not prevalent in modern frameworks and they're not prevalent in modern frameworks because we don't need to teach people how to not code SQL injection or cross-site scripting in React, right? At least to the same degree, there are still gotchas and places that you can trip. But I think that heads to your laziness points. Then in terms of like incentivizing versus, you know, penalizing or something like that, or in terms of like enforcement, yeah, we've seen a lot of success with gamification right? I know it's kind of a, a bit of a buzzword, but, and I think that this is not a unique to security problem, right? To go back to drawing the, uh, parallel to other bugs, right? Plenty of orgs that I've seen have public kind of bug dashboards, right? right. Of, Hey, who introduced the most SEV1 bugs or, or whatever it is, right? That like broke something this week. And it's like, okay, keep my name towards the bottom. of of that list, right? Because there's some public shaming involved, right? Seeing people do similar with security bugs, right? Just depends on your culture of your org, size of your org. Again, it also ties to the other thing we were talking about with embeds and champions. I think if you have a security champion on your team, you have a little bit more up your sleeve in terms of incentives or co working, co coding, co fixing bugs with the champion or something like that so it's not just like all on the dev teams. But yeah, public shaming is very uh useful tool in terms of speeding things up, right? No one wants to look bad in front of all their people. But is that part of your culture? Could you somehow find the balance between that type of incentive structure while remaining fairly blameless, right? Where it's like okay, no one's like worried about their job security by this, right? But it's more of a game, right? Where it's like hey, let's keep our score low or high, whichever way you're doing it, right, in terms of secure coding, right, without feeling like, on the low end of the totem pole, and worried about my job and all this kind of stuff, because you don't want to foster kind of a toxic culture around security vulnerabilities. We actually have implemented a, we send, like, challenge coins and security swag to people who self-report, like, things that they've, like, hey, I released this, it caused an incident, or I did this thing, and if someone's like the cause of an incident and they self-report or stuff like that, it's like we do the opposite of penalizing, right? We we encourage, yeah, great, thank you for realizing it and reporting it, and like let's go, let's figure it out and fix this together, right? So there's a balance, right, in terms of getting eyeballs on it and uh, and incentivizing the the correct behavior.
0: I've got a great example to share on this, but before I talk about that, I just want to make a quick clarification. When I said engineers, great engineers are lazy. It's a good thing, right? You want them to be lazy. You want to get them to get the job done as quickly and as easily as possible. So that's a good thing. In terms of uh, building that incentive structure, I was talking to some of my friends at, uh, at Chime, the security team at Chime. They've built this amazing product called Monocle. And I think, Clint, you featured that in one of your newsletters. It's a great way to incentivize adoption of controls that you want to incentivize that, right? So if I remember correctly, you can define certain set of practices or things that you want the dev teams to adopt. And based on the adoption of that, every code repo gets a score or a rating, and they add that as a label on that repo. So if if you're a dev team, you have your score uh, ranking system on your own repo, which is phenomenal, Like right? You're showing the health of uh, security health of your code base in the GitHub repo itself, a great way to incentivize, in my opinion ban of the project
2: we did a little hack week project at my job where we implemented kind of an internal version of monocle integrated into prs the same way so yes practicing what i preach on the gamification side that's amazing did you see any results it's brand new it's brand new so yeah we i don't have data good or bad to share but obviously i'm betting on it being good so yeah So you talked a little bit about sort of like naming and shaming, but I think it
1: doesn't even have to be that it could just be like providing visibility into the current state of things, which I think Monocle and what you just said is where it's just like a, I think I've seen, there was this one AppSec USA a couple of years ago where there were like, or at least between AppSec Cali, AppSec USA and something else, there were like five talks that were all about like, here's a security dashboard we built. And what I think was interesting was it was just either by a project or by org and it wasn't necessarily actively trying to change behavior, it was more just like, Hey, here's the current security posture of these things. And just like making that very easily visible. And it just like, I don't know if you're like a VP or something like senior engineering leader and like most of your org is like, you know, red or orange and like your peers are like green, like you want to change it. (laughs) It's just sort of like fundamental human psychology, even if the security team isn't like pointing fingers or like trying to change anything. It's more just like providing visibility into the current state of things, which depending on culture and someone's motivation, causes action without you trying to necessarily like actively do it. So I don't know. It would be interesting to see how many companies could implement Monocle and like what the outcomes would be. Like some sort of controlled study where it's like we implemented Monocle at like, I don't know, 20 companies of different sizes and like this was the changes we observed. But yeah, I don't know. I think invisibility useful.
0: It sounds like both of you guys are pitching Tromso in some way or the other, but this is uh, kind of like an interesting data. I mean, so we do that at Tromso as well, right? So one of the things that we've seen across many of our customers is using that security score as a way to drive visibility, right? So you're building a security score, kind of like a monocle, right? And goes back to my previous experience as well, when I used to lead the security teams, the only thing we had to do was measure the different dev teams all the way up to the BUs and just share that data in engineering leadership team. That's it, right? You're letting the data talk about the security health and posture. So you're not pointing fingers, you're not blaming anybody. Here's the data, you can look at the data, but it's not emotions, it's the data doing the talk. And what we saw was once you start sharing that data at the right levels, with the right visibility, you can see action, you can see people trying to make their numbers look better, their scores look better, and we started seeing a significant shift in acceptance of security posture and investments towards it in just initiatives to make security better just by sharing that data at the right level.
1: I'm curious for that, in addition to uh, just sharing sort of the data, maybe like this many vulnerabilities or these types of issues, did you also look at like uh, connected to like outages or bug bounty reports or like breaches or like, I guess, did you also have like a some other little like impact or sort of thing as well. Cause, um, yeah, think, like data is interesting, but I feel like depending on the leader, they might be like, yeah, but does this really matter? It's like, yeah, yeah. it's red. But, like, we haven't gotten breached because of me. Or I don't know. Curious if you like tied into other things.
0: Yeah. You know, and so that's, that's definitely, you know, the seniority of the people definitely matter. What also matters is the frequency, how frequently you report it. So, like, if you're reporting number of breaches, it doesn't make sense to do it every in a biweekly meeting. Hopefully, you don't have that many breaches. <laughs> oh. So, what we actually ended up reporting was more of a progress metrics, more like a, you know your time to remediation. We almost never reported volume of vulnerabilities. It's like, okay, what is your MTTR? How long does it take on an average for a team to fix certain categories of bugs? and categories of bugs, meaning compliance-related bugs, customer-facing bugs, or severity of certain bugs. So we reported on those. Not necessarily on, you have 15,000 issues, now go do something about it, right? That doesn't make sense. And so the bugs, reporting on the mean time to remediate for bugs is one category of things. We also reported on adoption of security controls. That was fairly early on in the security program when we were trying to get the dev teams adopt SCA tooling, SAS tooling, bug bounty, All of those things when we were, or even uh, uh, Secrets Vault, we wanted them to use safe base images for Docker containers using some of these React frameworks and things like that. So we reported on adoption of those controls as one category of things just to measure progress. And then remediation of uh, bugs was another category. But those were more of the biweekly reports in engineering leadership uh, that we would report at the board level or at the more executive leadership level when it was more quarterly or a yearly reports, so that was a totally different set of metrics. Cool, man, thanks for sharing. I kind of stepped into a controversial topic on that one this week
2: where I saw a post, I think it was on LinkedIn, and uh, someone said, okay, you've got a better vulnerability scanner, so now you have thousands of more vulnerabilities and you need to figure out what to do with them. And I said, correction, if you have thousands more, uh, you have a worse vulnerability scanner. <laughs> and that was a, a relatively controversial topic because when you just said Harshal, right, of like, okay, you've got 15,000 findings. What does that do for anybody, right? You're never getting to the long tail of those, right? And a large portion of them don't matter, right? And so, yeah, I got accused of being a ostrich with my head in the sand, asking for less vulnerabilities out of my vulnerability scanner. <laughs> and and all the like, but I I agree, right? It's like, if you have thousands or even millions, I've worked at orgs with millions of, of vulnerabilities across you know many teams, it's, okay, what use is the long tail of those that are never gonna get touched? What use is it besides generating some noise in some vulnerability database somewhere, right? No one's ever gonna look at them. They're never gonna be part of an exploit and context is kind of super important, right? So yeah, that was me postulating, nope, you have a worse vulnerability scanner. If it was better, it would know context, It would know all this other stuff, it would be able to narrow it down for me. But that's just, you know, a wish list. That's why there's a whole industry that Tromzo plays in, that is to try to, uh,
0: you know, make some of uh, those problems uh, go away. Yeah, Yeah, and one of the, the worst security behaviors that I've seen from some teams is when there's an incident or a breach or a compliance issue or a customer finds out an issue, then they end up blaming the engineering team saying, we already knew, we already told you that this is one of the 15,000 issues. You didn't fix it. Not my problem, right? That is definitely not a behavior that we should we should carry forward. It's the, not, in not my useful. It's not helpful. Yeah. 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 So somebody should be doing the job of figuring out what's worthy of deserving engineering investment in the other million things that engineering teams need to do somebody needs to do that analysis, which are the uh, few things that dev teams need to start adopting and start fixing. All right. Any last comments? For all the vendors listening, my RSA
2: is booked. (laughs) 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 But no, thanks for having me. This is great. Yeah. I think a lot to come right on on some of the evolution here. I think we're in the middle of a a big transformation in AppSec. So it's cool to get to talk uh, a lot about it. Fantastic.
0: Well, Thanks for your time, Matt and Clint. It was a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to The Future of Application Security. If you've enjoyed this episode or you are new to the show, I'd love to have you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any episode. And if you like the podcast, I'd be grateful if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.